You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to join you again, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Um, for our listeners, um, I should outline that today on the podcast, we're going to um, be revisiting Southeast Asia. Uh, as you know, we like to jump around Asia a little bit on the show. Um, but this time, uh, Prashant and I are actually going to take this opportunity to uh, review something that we haven't really talked about on the podcast in a while, um, which is we're going to talk about the state of um, democracy in Southeast Asia. And specifically, we're going to focus on three cases in this podcast. Uh, we're going to focus on Indonesia, where we recently had, on at the end of June, we had um, major local elections, and uh, that country is coming up on a major um, general election next year for the next um, president. So we can talk a bit about um, where things are going in Indonesia. Uh, second, we'll talk about Cambodia. Uh, as listeners might know, Cambodia has been sort of a major hotspot of democratic regression and authoritarian upsurge uh, in Southeast Asia under Prime Minister Hun Sen. Um, and then we'll close out the podcast with a discussion of the current state of um, Thailand, uh, where a, um, a military junta continues to be in power um, with uh, elections supposedly uh, around the corner, but uh, it remains to be seen if those will happen. So we'll be taking stock of effectively uh, democracy around Southeast Asia today. Um, so Prashant, I want to start with Indonesia. Uh, so 2018 is a big year for uh, electoral politics in the country. Uh, the elections that we just had, we saw uh, 171 different provincial elections around the country. Uh, voters selected a range of local leaders, including uh, governors and mayors uh, around the country. Um, and, you know, I wanted to sort of get your sense of what really we saw as a result this, uh, of this election. We, um, we have talked about Indonesian democracy on the podcast fairly recently uh, in the context of, um, you know, the changing nature of political Islam in Indonesia and uh, how that might threaten the um, ruling um, PDIP and the odds for uh, that party going into the general elections. Uh, so what what did you see in, uh, in the recent provincial elections in Indonesia and what did they tell you about uh, where democracy in the country is headed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the first thing to say is, as you correctly highlighted, um, the reason why these regional elections are getting so much attention is that it plays into the bigger question of whether we're going to get a few more years of continuity under the government of Joko Widodo, which is under the PDIP, or whether we're going to be in for a change that could see more sort of a the emergence of a more perhaps radical, nationalistic, and and maybe you know some changes in foreign policy too in terms of where Indonesia is headed. And if you're looking for indicator indicators with respect to that. What you're looking for is clues about, you know, the role of religion in politics, which has been a huge issue in Indonesia. Jokowi's own popularity, you know, what what uh, candidates did the PDIP back and did those candidates win? And what does it say about the rise of potential future leaders? And in all those cases, I think you would say the PDIP suffered some significant setbacks in mm -hmm. the regional elections. And the opposition coalition, which is a range of parties, um, did have a range of victories in some of these elections. And I think the second thing that came out clearly was that there was some evidence of Islamist grassroots mobilization, not to a significant degree, but there was some of it. And I think some folks are seeing that as a staging ground or, or kind of a preparatory round for the presidential elections uh, next year. And that worries some folks who who think that there might be some mobilization. We talked about the uh, Ahok case and uh, the Jakarta governor uh, race, for example. 
Um, so that's something which is going to play into calculations in the presidential elections next year. Right, right. And so, um, you know, one of the long um, long-standing trends in uh, Indonesia, Indonesian politics uh, in the democ- democratization era, is the phenomenon of um, f- former um, military officials, uh, generals um, running in elections. Uh, so Jokowi was previously challenged by uh, Prabowo, and uh, n- now I think we're starting to see signs that um, members of the former military are starting to. Um, collaborate with these um, ascendant um, political Islamist forces in the country. Uh, do you see that becoming um, a, a major thing for us to watch going into 2019? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's one of the big worries. We saw um, that case with Prabowo. Um, we've seen cases with uh, former and even at that time current Indonesian military officials uh, you know, forming alliances or at least suggesting that they would be open to such alliances. So that is a concern. The reason why that that is a concern is because I think uh, at least some observers view this as a symptom of a wider problem, which is the emergence of an Indonesia that's perhaps you know more more uh, less tolerant, but also perhaps more nationalistic on the world stage. So one thing that we can say about the Jokowi administration is that. It's been, you know, it's been active internationally. I mean, we've we've written about uh, developments in Indonesia. We wrote about, for example, you wrote this week about, you know, the Sabang port and, and involvement with India, for example. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked about U.S.-Indonesia relations before. So they've been active, but there's been a lot more domestic focus in terms of the prioritization, right? So right. if it affects Indonesia's local, domestic politics, Jokowi's more willing to invest in that. So what does that mean for a, a leader like Prabowo or somebody else of that orientation? How might Indonesia's foreign policy change? And that, I think, is what uh, some people are looking to in 2019. So let me ask you that then. I mean, we, you know, this is a geopolitics podcast. So, you know, um, I think, you know, we can help our listeners maybe prepare for the possibility that Indonesia does see a significant um, change in uh, next year's 2019 elections. What are some of the outcomes that we might expect? No, absolutely. I, I think that's the big question. So I think if you look at this idea of a more nationalistic Indonesia, a more assertive Indonesia, a more confident Indonesia, the first place you'd see that uh, in terms of assertiveness is Indonesia's surrounding waters and potentially disputes that it has with neighboring countries. So Indonesia has a number of disputes. Mm-hmm. There's outstanding disputes with Malaysia. But there's also Indonesia is not officially a claimant in the South China Sea disputes, but there are disputes that it has uh, with China as well with respect to the Natunas. And the Jokowi administration has been nationalistic as well with respect to those. But could we see a new administration uh, that would be more assertive and perhaps more uh, more, I guess, I don't want to say militaristic, but I guess more forward leaning and perhaps uh, a little bit more discerning in terms of how it addresses these issues. And that could potentially create problems on on the China side. Mm -hmm. But similarly with the United States too, I mean, if you see the emergence of a a less tolerant Indonesia and an Indonesia that's more assertive, that historically is tracked with administrations that also have problems with the United States, the idea that the United States is trying to restrict Indonesia's autonomy. So this could play both ways in terms of relations with the United States, China, and and also neighboring states. Right. It could also be very interesting within uh, ASEAN, where Indonesia is uh, the big heavyweight. Um, If if you have an Indonesia that that treats uh, its role within ASEAN significantly differently, I can see that having uh, important implications for the region as well, especially if we also see tensions grow with China. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, you know, I think that's um, something to watch. Uh, certainly, I think Indonesia's got a uh, a an interesting um, year coming up uh, ahead, and I think the recent local elections really give us a good launch pad uh, into um, the general elections next year. Uh, but how about we talk a bit about Cambodia? Sure. Um, so Cambodia, unfortunately, has been the the real sore point in uh, Southeast Asia in terms of um, regression along several axes, uh, human rights, uh, democracy, rule of law. Um, Hun Sen has led the country for more than 30 years. Um, but in 2017, we saw um, a serious uh, crackdown, the arrest of opposition leaders and um, all sorts of um, regressions there. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really don't see any signs of short term improvement in uh, in Cambodia. The country continues to be pulled uh, into, uh, you know, China's sort of orbit and it finds a willing partner in Beijing that's not going to give it any grief. In the meantime, we have a U.S. administration that's quite disinterested uh, in the issues of uh, human rights, rule of law, and democratization in Southeast Asia. Um, so really, it seems like Hun Sen is um, is in quite a powerful position right now. But, you know, looks can be deceiving. Uh, Cambodia could be heading into um, a period of sustained um, destabilization. Uh, but what's your, um, what's your assessment of um, what's going on there? Obviously, we do have the local elections there coming up later this month as well. Uh, so it'll be interesting to hear your take on that, Prashant. No, absolutely. I, I think that's that's the right way to frame it, which is that you know, on the in the Indonesia case, we have just a full range of outcomes, and and folks are trying to discern what scenarios are more likely. In the Cambodia case, it's almost like, you know, because the outcome is so assured, the conversation's already shifted to what's Cambodia's post-election future and climate going to look like, right? Whether it is going to be the continuation of what we've seen over the past year, which is a pattern of domestic consolidation and opposition crackdown. A period where Cambodia, which is historically known for trying its best to diversify its relationships, has gotten closer to China. Um, and also relationships with Western countries, including the United States, have been strained. So is that going to be the scenario that we see if, unless there's going to be a major uh, a sort of unprecedented development and the, the CPP and Hun Sen get voted out of power? Or could, as you hinted, could looks be deceiving and we see a period where Cambodia and Hun Sen, having consolidated domestically and having won the election, then pivot to this idea of now that we've got the stability, let's now talk to Western countries, including the United States, and try to at least return back to this period of diversification because we don't want to grow too dependent on China. And will we see potentially domestically as well, the CPP bringing in young people into its leadership and potentially Hun Sen uh, slowly laying the groundwork for succession, uh, whether it's to his children or potential allies. That's another thing I think that would be interesting to see because that would have big implications for Cambodia's foreign policy and geopolitics that we've talked about in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think the succession issue in Cambodia doesn't get enough play. Uh, it, it, it's quite significant. Um, but, you know, these upcoming um, uh, local uh, communal elections in Cambodia, I think there's also, you know, serious concerns that they just simply won't be free and fair in any real way. So, um, you know, I think the expectation is that, um, you know, Hun Sen and the CPP end up coming out um, quite well. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, it. you know, um, as you pointed out with the introduction for Cambodia, I mean, given the fact that um, the Cambodia's biggest opposition party has been dissolved and, and the, the leaders are one, one leader is behind bars, another one is in exile, um, it, it really is the case that the CPP will 
probably in most likelihood um, preserve its leadership. The, the issue is, and I think this is kind of the, uh, the sort of black swan event here. I mean, could we see protests and potential uh, mm-hmm. destabilization in Cambodia following the elections? Right. Um, and the other part of that's been really interesting that, that we've been tracking too, right, is, you know, what is the role of outside powers as we see this period of crackdown in Cambodia? I mean, we've seen the Western powers threatening Cambodia with sanctions and, and sort of maintaining arm's length. But we also have seen an interesting dynamic where China, but also Japan, have funded and, and become really involved with the upcoming elections. Um, and in China's case, we've seen you know recent uh, reports about interference in Cambodia's election and a Chinese hacking group conducting phishing attacks. So it, this Cambodian election has been uh, remarkable, not just for its domestic implications, but also the role of outside powers and how they're trying to sort of navigate this domestic political environment, which has been really interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's another election to watch um, in another country to keep a close eye on. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, I'm not too optimistic for uh, improvements in Cambodia. Um, but I think there are a lot of sort of um, unexpected pathways for things to really uh, change in that country, too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, you know, moving on to Thailand, um, I believe uh, since the coup in 2014, we've had sort of six different promises from uh, Prime Minister Prayut, uh, the former uh, general, about um, elections in the country. And the current date that we're anticipating elections is um, early spring 2019, around February um, they were supposed to happen in uh, November 2018. That was the fifth promise date. Uh, that's not going to happen, it looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is where we are with uh, Thailand. We've been anticipating these elections coming up. Uh, the country's uh, constitution, uh, constitution has been changed, which we discussed uh, on a podcast um, recently, too. Um, but uh, yeah, Prashant, looking at, looking at Thailand, what's your, uh, what's your sense of the prognosis for uh, democracy there? Yeah, I mean, exactly as you as you put it, I mean, the fact that you've had these series of promises that are not fulfilled um, really has gotten the Thai public uh, really sort of skeptical about whether uh, they will happen at all or whether they'll happen on time. So, in fact, the, if you look at the polling, a majority of Thais uh, don't believe that an election will happen in 2019. There's still a significant number that believe it will, but the fact that you've seen a majority of public opinions shift like that significantly is really telling. Um, I think the other dynamic here that's really interesting is that the question really in terms of the debate has shifted from, you know, when the election will be held to, you know, if an election really will matter at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the junta has moved to ensure that the election process and outcome will be designed to almost guarantee its continued strong role right. um, and that the pro-toxin forces um, won't emerge uh, in terms of uh, a position of primacy in Thai politics. So. I do want to just quickly is, tell our listeners uh, who, uh, you know, we refer to pro- uh, pro-toxin forces, who you're talking about in Thailand, just right. to get some context. Right, right. So the, the former Prime Minister Thaksin uh, Shinawatra, who was ousted in a previous coup um, and, and sort of uh, saw following that, still remains pretty active uh, in Thai politics. And there's been the succession of uh, pro-toxin forces and parties that have merged and positioned against the monarchy and the ruling military. So that's kind of the the struggle in Thai politics. I I do think that you know since we are the in the geopolitics podcast, where this is interesting for foreign policy is, uh, what does this say about Thai foreign policy when you have this you know sort of protracted period of political uncertainty, right? It makes it really difficult to forecast strategically where Thailand will be on its foreign alignments. First of all, 
And then secondly, as you pointed out with respect to Cambodia, you're seeing this dynamic where when countries are, you know, surprise, surprise, right? When they're involved domestically with their internal affairs, what they want to do is to cultivate relationships with partners who, A, can bring quick economic wins for them, and B, will be more forgiving of them if they have to do undemocratic political things. And that means more China for Thailand and, and sometimes less the United States. Now, under the Trump administration, we've actually seen uh, the Trump administration move closer to Thailand and actually secure a lot of political and security cooperation, in part because, as you noted, there's less of a concern for democracy and human rights relative to the Obama administration. Right. But it still is the case that um, Thailand is, is quite close to China, and a lot of the cooperation that is undergoing now, if you were to ask uh, really anyone who observes the region, you know, 10 years ago, be very surprised to think that, you know, Thailand is, is, is moving forward with buying submarines from China. <laughs> that's right. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, that's the big question here uh, as well. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of the big story with uh, a lot of this um, democratic mm -hmm. regression in Southeast Asia uh, is that it is an immense opportunity uh, for China. Um, I think the pathways are different, right? We shouldn't paint all of these very diverse right. countries uh, with one broad brush saying that, um, you know, tr troubling democratic forces in, uh, you know, ascendant political Islam in Indonesia is one thing and the Thai junta is another thing. But, um, you know, I think the prospects for China, the opportunities that lie ahead for China in Southeast Asia, um, I think are, are very much interlinked with these domestic forces. Um, and, you know, I don't think we have time today. Uh, but I think maybe another day we should uh, go back and, you know, also revisit uh, the aftermath of the uh, recent uh, Malaysian election, which has been obviously very interesting to observe there um, and how that country is reevaluating its relationship with China and uh, especially the uh, former economic projects in the context of corruption. So, mm -hmm. you know, Southeast Asia um, remains complex, but I do think that on, on balance, you know, a lot of this does present quite an opportunity for China. Yep, absolutely. Well, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me today. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, for our listeners, thanks as always for listening. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so. You can do so on uh, iTunes or Google Play and a range of other uh, podcast hosts. And if you've been a subscriber but you haven't left us a review on those services yet, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.